We have two scripture passages this morning. One is Psalm 41. It's not put in your bulletin, but we did sing it. Psalter Hymnal 73 is based off of Psalm 41. It's pertinent to our passage this morning in the Gospel of John, so we're going to read it together. Psalm 41 can be found in your pew Bibles on page 880, Psalm 41. Psalm of David. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Our second passage is from John chapter 13. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,600. And 74, 1,674. I am not referring to all of you. This is Jesus speaking. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I'm not sure if any of you have ever um, experienced one of those murder mystery dinners. A little while ago, we went over to Mark and Angie's house, and we had a murder mystery night. And the concept is basically you gather, you're playing a part, you can dress up if you'd like, you have to have an accent, and you're trying to discover who it is that's the one that did the murder. But nobody knows, not even the one who is the murderer knows that they're the murderer until the end. So it's, it's, it's a fun game, it's an interesting game. And as I was studying the passage this week, it's sort of what I thought of. That John chapter 13 here, the Last Supper, when Jesus is speaking of the betrayal that's coming upon him, he continues to foreshadow, he continues to speak of it. And here in this moment when the betrayer is finally revealed, it's sort of like the murder mystery dinner of the Gospel of John or of the life of Jesus. And we're given a front row seat. And we're given privileged access because we know who the betrayer is or the murderer, if you want to say that. But how would we feel if we were there at that meal in the midst of friends not knowing, not knowing that they were upon the eve of the darkest night. Would this scene look a little bit different? And I hope that maybe as we go through the passage this morning, we can get a sense of that. The theme this morning is Christ comforts his disciples in the midst of his sorrow. Now that could be a theme for much of John chapter 13 all the way to 17. Um, but it is particularly emphasized in this passage because we need to ask ourselves, why is it exactly that Christ is going about telling the disciples that one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to, going to turn me in, one of you is going to be the one who turns me over to the Romans, who turns me over to be crucified? And how exactly do you think that would be a comfort? Well, that's what we're going to look at. The first thing that I want to look at is how the betrayal, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot is foreshadowed in the first portion of these verses, verses 18 to 22. Uh, Christ is foreshadowing. He's kind of hinting at the betrayal that's coming. But here in this passage, we see that the betrayer is revealed, and that's what occurs in verses 23 through 30, that the betrayer is revealed, maybe not to everyone at this murder mystery dinner, but to one person in particular, the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, John. And maybe why it's significant or important that Christ let him in on this very detail. So let's look at that first portion, uh, the betrayal foreshadowed, starting in verse 18 of 22. But before we get there, I believe it's important that we once again grasp the, the setting of this passage, the setting of these events this is what is often called the Last Supper and the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in John's Gospel, it takes on a bit of a different narrative. It takes on a bit of a different focus of events. And prior to what we're seeing right here, prior to the continuation of this Passover meal, the Passover in which the Paschal Lamb is slaughtered 
to protect the Israelite people from the angel of death who came in Egypt, a foreshadowing of Christ. We need to remember that Christ has now turned away from his public ministry. He's focusing on his private ministry with his closest friends, his disciples, the 12 disciples in particular. We need to remember that we were told by John that the, the following stories, the following narratives, the following presentations of Christ are all about Jesus showing that he loved those who were his in the world and he's going to love them to the end. He's going to love them to the telos, to the end, to the uttermost, to the full extent of his love, to the very end, all the way to the cross, the cross of his death. And in this moment, he washes the disciples' feet. And we already got a couple of statements from Jesus that he's understanding, he's anticipating the betrayal that's coming, the course of events that's going to unfold as he spoke to Peter while he was washing Peter's feet. He said, a person who has a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And then we come here to verse 18. Jesus transitions away from the application of serving one another that he drew out from washing the disciples' feet. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. When Jesus here states that he's not referring to all of them, he's saying that there is a distinction in this group, that there is one that is set apart that's different and not in a good way. He says, I know those I have chosen you. He's not saying that he did not choose Judas Iscariot. Do we understand the sovereignty of God? Do we understand the sovereignty of Jesus Christ? Even over the events of his betrayal and his fall, he chose Judas Iscariot as his disciple. What he's saying is, I know. I can see into the heart of those that I chose. I know their intentions. I know their heart. I know what they intend to do. And he's saying, I see into Judas Iscariot's heart, and I see that his heart is turning away. Remember what we read in chapter 13. We were told the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. That the devil had already prompted, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, ooh, this is a good idea. Ooh, you know what? I could probably make a little bit more money. I could make a little bit of money. If I turn Jesus into these religious leaders, because I've been told they're wanting him, they're looking for him. And Jesus peers into the heart of Judas Iscariot, his close friend, his chosen disciple, and he sees that. He sees the heart of a sinner bent towards the temptation and the lies of Satan. But even in the midst of that, Jesus is doing something for his disciples. He's comforting them because he's saying, even this is to fulfill the scripture. 
to fulfill the very word of God. And he quotes from Psalm 41 that we read. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And we read Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is what is often called a lament, a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of David. Most people say that this psalm was one that he wrote in the midst of his son betraying him where he had to run out of the city of Jerusalem like a, a runaway, like a criminal, because his son had turned against him, turned the people of Israel against him, and had overcome, taken over. And in the midst of that lament, David is crying out, God, I'm on a bed of sickness, and all of these people have turned against me, and even my close friends have turned against me, ones I believe I trusted that I could put my trust in. The friend that I love, the one that ate bread with me, the one that was in table fellowship with me, the one that sat at the seat of honor at my table that I shared bread with, he is the one who has raised his heel against me. And we're told that these words are a prophecy that point to Jesus Christ. What we need to understand here as we look at this passage, as we see that Christ is comforting his disciples in the midst of his sorrow, as he's saying, I know all those that I've chosen, I know one of you is going to betray me, I know that this is to fulfill the scriptures. In verse 19 he says, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that ego a me, that I am he. You will believe that I am God, the Son of God. He's saying, even in my betrayal, I need you to know that this is all for a reason, and I need you to know that you can trust my word. I need you to know who I am, that I am he. Of course, of those famous I am statements of the Gospel of John, and this one didn't make the cut. It just doesn't have that nice flavor to it. But it's still there. It's there, and it shows us that even in the midst of Christ's sorrow, he is comforting his disciples by giving them confidence in his word. Confidence in that things are ordered, that God is providential, that God is sovereign over all things, that God is even sovereign over the darkest day in history where the only innocent man is led to a criminal's cross and dies the death he doesn't deserve. It could be these very words that kept the disciples from simply scattering and staying scattered. It could be these very words that had them gathered in a room where Christ appeared to them. Frightened? Yes. Afraid? Yes. But maybe just a glimmer. Wait, he said this would happen. He said this was to fulfill prophecy. Christ gives them the confidence that those who accept the one That he sins, accepts him. And whoever accepts him, accepts the one who sent him. He's saying, this is your anchor of faith in God. To trust 
my word, to trust the word of God, to trust the word become flesh, dwelling among you. We also have to understand what is going on here at this murder mystery night. Because often when we talk about Judas Iscariot, when we talk about the betrayer, we can lose a heart of compassion. We can think of the words that Jesus said when he said, it would have been better for him to not be born. We can look at Judas as a lost cause from the get-go. We can look at Judas as someone to write off. We can look at Judas and we can have anger and bitterness in our heart. And we can read the words of Christ. But he quotes from Psalm 41, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Not as lament, but as judgment. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Christ is not angry in this moment. You understand that, right? Christ is broken over the loss of a close and dear friend, one whom he loved and one whom he had just washed his feet and one whom John himself says, having loved his own where in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. This is the prophet's lament. This is not the judgment of a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And Christ has a place for that. He does that, but not here when his close friend, when his close disciple is whispering, listening to, being enticed by Satan's lies temptations. What we see here is one last attempt of Jesus Christ to turn Judas Iscariot away from the condemnation of his own wicked heart. What does Jesus say after this? Verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now, I think that's a classic line for a murder mystery dinner night. One in which Jesus, who is sitting at the head of the table, who is host over the meal, says amongst the group of friends that have spent the last three years together with him, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Dun, 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 the plot thickens. The question is, how does a group of close friends respond to something like that? And the interesting thing is, if you look in the other Gospels, we see a variety of different perspectives. We see one in which we're told that they begin to ask Jesus, is it I? Every one of them, is it I? Is it I? We're told in another Gospel that at the same dinner, Possibly right after they were asking Jesus, is it I, is it I, that they began to look at each other and blame one another and then fight and bicker about who would be the greatest among them. But here in John's Gospel, we're told his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. 
If I were to give a, a modern application to what's going on here, understanding that the unique historical perspective, the unique historical situation of Jesus at the Last Supper and his prophesied betrayer, Judas Iscariot, is not something that we're going to repeat, but we could, we could say that when we are in the midst of fellow believers who have professed faith in Christ, and when we are in the midst of a world in which we hear of people who fall away from the faith who we never thought could happen to them, in a real sense, we're hearing the same words from Jesus again, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to that? How do we respond to when we hear of a, a famous preacher or pastor who has then now recanted his faith and walked away from the church? How do we respond when we hear of a friend back from high school days, Christian high school days, who's no longer in church, no longer walking with the Lord? How are we supposed to respond when we think of the people that we've gone to church with for many years who are no longer sitting next to us? I tell you how we should respond. We should not respond with fingers of judgment and condemnation and say, I can't believe that. I would never do that. No, we should be saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. Meaning that we must always stand on guard, that we must always pray to God that he would keep us in his hand, that he would hold on to us, that he would strengthen our faith, that he would keep us walking with him through the ups and downs of life, through the trials, through the darkness, through the light, through the good, through the bad, whatever it may be, that God would not let go of us. And we must hold on to the confidence that it's not just that Jesus would not let go of us, but that Jesus would never be kept from holding on to us. And another thing that we should do is we should never lose hope for those who have walked away. Never stop praying. Never stop asking God for his mercy and for his grace. Never stop asking God to turn their hearts back to him. Never stop asking God to soften their hardened hearts so that they would come. Come back. Come back home. That's the betrayal foreshadowed. But what about the betrayer revealed? Because the story goes on. We're told that one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which most are in agreement with, is John the Apostle, probably the youngest of the disciples, was reclining next to him. What we need to see and understand is that at this time it was popular at important feasts to have a table that sat low to the ground. And there would be pillows and cushions around it and you would lean upon it like this, laying down. 
laying down and eating doesn't sound like a good idea to me, but that was what was popular at the time. And this disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he's reclining next to him, maybe to the left of him. And Simon Peter's next to him, so Simon Peter tells this disciple, John, ask him which one he means. Hey. And then leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. What we have here in verses 23 through 26 is a contrast between the disciple whom Jesus loved and the disciple whom Jesus knew would betray him. What I find interesting is that if it is the case that John is lying next to, to the left of Jesus, the seat of honor is to the right of the host over the meal. And as we find out that Jesus turns to Judas, who must be right next to him, and offers him this piece of bread, that it could very, very well be the case that Judas Iscariot is sitting in the place of honor at this feast. To me, I don't find that as an ironic mockery, one in which Christ is going to honor the one he knows is going to betray him, but rather as an expression, an outreached hand of mercy extended to one whom Christ knows is being deceived. It's much like the lament that Christ has over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. How often I have wanted to gather your children, but you would not. It's a lament. This disciple whom Jesus loved leans into Christ, leans into Christ to hear the truth. That's something we can learn. That if we want to, to find truth in this confused world, if we want to find truth in a world full of lies, we must lean into Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And by leaning into Christ, he is put in a privileged position, just like we are at this murder mystery dinner, of knowing exactly who it is that Christ is talking about. He is the one at this meal who is privileged to have the revelation of knowing who the betrayer is, that it's Judas. Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Even this act of taking some bread, dipping it in the dish, and handing it to Judas is an act of kindness. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of extended love and acceptance. It's much like what Boaz does with Ruth as she's working in the field. 
if you know that passage. Here, come, have some of this bread dipped in wine. Jesus, Jesus here is extending his love, his fellowship, his embrace to Judas with a piece of bread dipped in the dish. The question is, and the contrast between the disciple whom Jesus loved and the disciple whom Jesus knew would betray him, would the disciple who Jesus knew would betray him love him? Turn away from the lies and the deception of Satan and embrace Christ. Verse 27 tells us what happens. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And at that moment, Jesus knew, as he did know, that in order to fulfill prophecy, Judas Iscariot must be the one who betrays him. I want you to grapple with that. I want you to wrestle with that. The fact that Jesus knew before all time for the foundation of the world that Judas Iscariot would be part of the prophecy by betraying him, by being the betrayer. But that did not keep him from expressing the deepness and the, and the love and the mercy and the grace that he was extending to him. That's how God is. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to him. God would rather see the wicked repent and turn to him You understand that, don't you? It is the basis of our call to the people to believe upon Jesus Christ. It's a basis in God's character and nature. We aren't lying to people when we proclaim to them, God desires that you would turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. But as Jesus knew the heart, knew the desires, knew the intentions of those whom he had chosen, he saw in this moment that Satan entered him, entered into Judas. And at that point, Jesus said, what you're about to do, do quickly. You've already decided You've already pointed yourself in the direction of condemnation and judgment. You've already placed yourself upon the path of disobedience and rejection of me. Whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. We're told that no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. They simply thought that Judas had been sent to run an errand, to go and to do something. We're told as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. What we have in Judas Iscariot is what could be called the hypocrite par excellence. 
the ideal hypocrite. The one who walks among the disciples, lives with Jesus for three years, hears the teaching, is privileged to the presence of Jesus for three years. And even here at the Last Supper, even here at the last moment, when Jesus is saying, I know that one of you is going to betray me, nobody knows who it is. And I think when we see this, when we see this hypocrite par excellence, the prime example of a hypocrite, well, we're placed before us some lessons, lessons from Judas, lessons that we can learn from him. And one is this, that one must be careful to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, we are playing the hypocrite. Now that is not to scare you, to send you on some strange journey of undermining your faith. It's to say that if Judas can walk among the disciples in Jesus for three years and no one knows that he is the one who is going to betray him, maybe we don't know either. If we could be lying to ourselves we truly have a simple faith and trust in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with asking God, God, help me to see that I really am holding on to Christ in faith. Help me to see that I am not simply playing the part of a faithful Christian without having the living proof of it in me. Of course, another lesson that we can learn from Judas is one we've already talked about this morning. The importance of saying when we see others who walk away from the faith, but for the grace of God, there go I. When we see Judas walk out of this murder mystery dinner night, we need to be praying to God, thanking him for holding on to us, for keeping us, for being faithful to us, and we need to ask him to continue to do so. It also helps us to know That as much as it is difficult, we should not be shocked when we see those who are close to us turn away from the Lord. It happens. It happened in Christ's own life. Something that broke his heart, he lamented over. And it's something that should break our hearts as well. It's something that we should be led to prayer in. It's something that should lead us as Christ is comforting his disciples in the midst of his sorrow to trust in his word to lean and to depend upon what he has spoken, what he has done. It should not cause us to lose hope. For just as there is a Judas story in the scriptures, one in which Judas walks away from the fellowship of Jesus Christ, 
betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, and then once he realizes what he's done, goes and hangs himself, there is also a Peter story in the Bible. Is there not? One in which Peter denies Christ three times, yet Christ prays for him. Christ receives him back into fellowship. Christ renews him for his mission for the church and for his people. And we are not privileged to know who are Judas's and who are Peter's, so we pray, don't we? We ask God to show mercy and to bring his grace. Finally, in verse 30, we have these words written for us by John. It's the last few words of this passage. As Judas walks out, out of the candlelit meal that they are having, the fellowship that they are having, the joys and the laughter that could be coming from that room, John tells us, and it was night. This is not some simple weather-related information that John deemed important to his readers. It's symbolic. It's representative. That Judas is leaving the bright, candlelit fellowship meal for the night, the darkness. It should bring to mind the words of John chapter 1, the prologue. It should bring to mind the words of John chapter 3, that Christ came into this world, but the people loved the darkness. They fleed from him. He was the light, but they fled from him because they didn't want their evil deeds revealed. But it also points to the night that's coming for Christ, doesn't it? That dark night in which he's going to be put upon the cross where the skies will be darkened. When the Son of God, the Son of Man... Is crucified on the cross. But where's the night that approaches for us where we stand? Redemptive history, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. The night that comes for us is the second coming of Christ. It's not a night for everyone. It is beauty and glory, and it's something that we pray for, come Lord Jesus, as believers. But it is a night for some. It's a night for those who have not come into the candlelit fellowship meal of Jesus Christ with his disciples, the fellowship of the church, the communion of saints. It is a night that approaches for them. It is a judgment for them, because if when Christ comes again, they stand outside of that fellowship meal. They stand outside in the night. They stand outside like Judas Iscariot. There will not be a chance at that, point, at that point, at that day, for them to turn and to come to Christ in faith. It's our responsibility, our joy as we stand here in the in-between, the already and the not yet, as we pray for those whom we love, who have walked away from the faith, 
whom we know who have walked away from the faith, as we see those people out in the world who may not know yet the good news of Jesus Christ, we must be thinking about the night. It was night for Christ as he approached the cross, but now in this moment, a night is coming as well for those who do not have faith in Christ. And it's a night that should spur us on to be proclaimers, to be spreaders of the good news of Christ, to be in, inviters in to the table fellowship, to the candlelit dinner, of the communion of saints of Christ and his disciples. Until that day comes, may we, may we find ourselves in that fellowship together and may we spur one another on to love and good works. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ in the midst of his sorrow comforts his disciples with confidence in your word, in his word. We thank you that Christ here in this passage shows such great compassion and love and mercy even to an enemy, one who would betray him. We praise you, Lord, that you've held on to us, and we pray that you would continue to hold on to us, that you would complete the work that you have begun in us, and that you would keep us faithful to you to the end. And we pray, Lord, for all those whom we know who have walked away from the faith, who've turned their back upon you. We ask, Lord, that you would turn their hearts toward you again, that they would come in from the darkness, in from the night, come back to the fellowship and the communion of saints. And we pray, Lord, as well, that you would help us to see, you would examine us, you would examine our hearts, that we may see that we have a true, although maybe even a feeble and simple faith in you, that we are not hypocrites like Judas that we are disciples who have fallen, who have stumbled, who have turned away, who have denied you even like Peter, but you have held to us. You have kept us from a fall we could not turn back from. And we ask all this in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.